0: Hello and welcome to episode 84 of Herpetological Highlights with me, Tom Major, and my co-host Ben Marshall. And in this 84th edition of the podcast, we are going to be talking a little bit of a mixed bag, some iguanas and some Heloderma beaded lizards, and a little bit of varanus as well, cheeky bit of monitor lizard excitement creeping in as well. This is actually a patron episode for our Patreon Miles Masterson, so big up Miles, thanks very much for the support. And uh, yeah, Miles actually asked for iguanas, then he messaged again asking for heloderma, which is good, because we've actually managed to do a little bit of both.
1: I'm surprised how well we've managed to uh, pull both species into one episode with a beautiful gradient from full heloderma paper into uh heloderma plus iguana paper although the iguana doesn't feature very heavily and then it's a full iguana at the end
0: yeah yeah we got the iguana at the end yeah the iguana in the uh, second or is it it depends which order we do the papers in which order are we doing them in we're going to do brains I, first the way
1: i described it i feel like there's a nice transition from species to species to species if we go that way yeah but it's entire it's, it's up to you if you feel like there's a better flow going a tougher way
0: I've got no preference on flow, as it goes. Um, no, I'm all just right. buzzing to talk about it. I think it's just a good place, you know. We've got all the species we were asked for. Also, it's like the end of February now, coming into March. I'm excited because it's nearly fieldwork time. I'm going out tomorrow. I'm going to put some felts out, some artificial refugia. Hopefully, uh, the nice black bits of reefing felt that attract snakes. So when I come around in a few months' time to lift them up, there'll just be snakes aplenty. My PhD Oh, Fingers research. crossed, mate. <laughs> yeah, Some nice hopefully.
1: recaps, some nice new young'uns.
0: That would be the dream.
1: Yeah. Some nice chubby ones that can fit a uh, transmitter in.
0: Yep, put in a Hollow Hill radio transmitter audio order this week. So they are coming, which is good.
1: Excellent.
0: Everything's shaping up for spring. 2021 is going to be a big year. So, shall we get into it?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let's go right into it.
0: Okay, so the first paper is plenty of authors. Cooper, Liu, undrill Kafritz, Dallas, Neeson, Slater, Stockert, Vold, Young, and Mendelssohn, twenty nineteen, Latency in Problem Solving as Evidence for Learning in varanid and Hilodermatid Lizards with comments on foraging techniques. And this was published in Copeia,
1: Otherwise known as uh nick Theology these days, right?
0: Oh, yeah, because it's the American Association of Ichthyologists and Herpetologists mm-hmm. tag team duo, mm-hmm. isn't it? Like...
1: Well, and they, yeah, it's, they've had a name change to get away from Cope.
0: Right, okay. Was Cope a baddie?
1: Uh, presumably, I don't know the details.
0: Cope. Cope, you floundering devil. Anyway, uh, yeah, so the kind of prerequisite to this paper. Varanids are supposed to be quite clever, right? Everyone always says they're quite clever. There's been some papers suggesting that they can like do stuff that other lizards maybe can't. They can do well, like simple problem solving, poke yeah, their fingers and if, into if you, stuff.
1: If you look one in the eye, you get that sense. You do. That it's not just sort of aimlessly, aimlessly looking around. It's looking you back in the eye.
0: Yeah, I think, to be honest, I was broken by jurassic park with monitor lizards because they just look so much like the cl- classic velociraptors that i've always kind of just considered them to be that way inclined and to be honest this paper didn't help that i i wouldn't call it some <laughs> a fear but their intelligence you know the whole door opening thing which is basically the premise of this paper are these animals capable of opening a door to get food and
1: uh yeah well, seeing i mean... them do it best spookiest scene in jurassic park is of course velociraptors coming into the kitchen yeah everybody knows it no one's going to fight that but you do need to recontextualize that with a lot of dogs can open doors and there's been studies that show rats can drive cars really oh yeah rat operated vehicles
0: Uh, is that what rov stands for
1: in in that paper it does. <laughs> I'll see if I can dig it up and throw it in the show notes. It's wicked. These little rats and they have little wires to pull and they drive around to get food. It's, it's fantastic. Are you kidding? But my what point is, is huh? my point is that intelligent animals. You don't have to be afraid of them. It doesn't have to be no. a fear thing. It could just it be, be a res- wonderful a, a wonderful celebration that both ourselves and rats can enjoy the freedom of only a only a small automobile
0: (laughs) there was honestly though when you first pass your driving test and rats rats that are listening will know this feeling when you first get that license and you're just free oh what a rush what a rush the other thing while we're on the subject of other sort of mammalian creatures that have been discovered to have intellect pigs there was a newspaper article recently which i got about halfway through but they taught pigs to play a video game i saw pigs had a joystick and they were having to like move something to get food so
1: Yes, Pigs can officially play video games. Yeah, yeah. Now, whether they're any good at it.
0: Yeah, I I think.
1: think... What's beautiful is PIG will fit perfectly in the high scores.
0: That's really nice. Yeah, every single machine you go up to in the arcade from here on out is just going to have pig as the first one. (laughs) They all know to represent their species. Um, Okay, so, yeah, the kind of idea for this paper is there's a test we've we've talked about lizard um intellects cognition? and cognition yeah in in the in the podcast in the past and this one's slightly different so it's got a puzzle feeder which i kind of briefly alluded to just now the idea is that there's this clear perspex kind of tube and it's got a hinged door built into it and then it's got loads of holes so the nice smells the aromas can escape and the you know, aroma of the lizard to dead and- mouse yeah, or in one case, the salad. Um, <laughs>
1: the aroma of salad. The
0: unappetizing salad. Um, but yeah, so the idea is that they, they put this pipe into the enclosure with these various lizards, which we'll get into. And they're given about half an hour, right, to try and get into the thing. If it took them longer than half an hour, they it's gave counted it counted as up.
1: a fail. Yeah,
0: yeah for statistical yeah. purposes. But essentially, their idea is they've got to, within half an hour, find out about the pole, the pipe go up to it and find a way of opening it, be it with their little claws or with their snouts. And they were testing this. So all of these lizards came from Atlanta Zoo. They're all captive bred. Yeah. Captive bred lizards. So they don't have any skills from being in the wild. They're all naturally... Well, they're all captive bred. So they're all kind of... That, yeah, you, they haven't been going out and learning loads of skills in the world in secret, basically. They're kind of a control group. And there was a whole bunch of different things. Um, a roughneck monitor, which is Varanus rudicollis; uh, Two emerald tree monitors, Varanus prasinus. Two mertens water monitors, which are Varanus mertensi. Uh, two Guatemalan beaded lizards, Heloderma Charles bogatai. And one Jamaican iguana, Cyclura collii. And so, yeah, they had... In all cases, the bait to try and lure them into opening this tube was a dead mouse, which is what they're accustomed to eating in captivity. The only exception is the Jamaican iguana, because iguanas don't really like mice. They like salad. So it had a mixed vegetable salad in the uh, tube for the iguana.
1: I mean, do you, do, you, do we want to just sort of just just deal with the iguana thing quickly? Yeah, let's talk now. about the
0: iguana, because um, we don't want to labor this, because it's probably embarrassed enough.
1: yeah. Basically the long and short of it is the iguana was not sufficiently motivated to participate in the task or certainly it wasn't quick enough to get to the salad. Uh yeah. Now whether that's because iguanas are sort of more chill whether that's because um they don't need that sort of problem solving sort of solution to find find leaves and vegetation okay That's what my first Could've... thought was. Right. Yeah. Leaves but are really... easy we don't we don't have a uh we don't have a a set uh there's there's not really anything you can pull from this study regarding iguanas other than you might have to slightly modify the um the experiment to 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 get a handle on iguana cognition in comparison to baronet's cognition but yeah. yeah yeah so all the stuff we were about to say Forget that it applies to the iguanas. The, the iguanas a non-starter. Basically, this is we are focusing on varanids, and these, uh, heloderma.
0: Yeah, the iguana was a uh, conscientious objector to this experiment. Uh, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Maybe, maybe, maybe it was not even interested. Even maybe the maybe the particular maybe the salad they had in the tube wasn't choice enough. We don't know. But yeah, the iguana yeah. is no longer relevant.
1: Or maybe it knew that the salad was going to be there later, so just didn't really care about putting in the effort right then when everyone was watching.
0: Yeah, maybe it's like a calorific thing. It's like, I'm not walking all the way over there to open that thing to get a few leaves. Get out of town. So, yeah, they were looking to see essentially whether or not over time these lizards would get quicker at this task. The task being go over to the tube, open it up and eat what's inside. And there was actually evidence of learning for two of the lizards, strong evidence of learning. One of the Varanus prasinus, one of the emerald tree monitors, got much quicker over time. And similarly, so did one of the Merton's monitors, Merton's water monitors. That also got quicker over time. It was interesting to see, actually, um, the difference in strategy between the monitor lizards and the beaded lizard.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Did you watch the videos?
1: I did watch the videos. I think we definitely put the links up in the uh, in the show notes. So basically they they've provided two examples of uh, one is a varenid, one is uh Heloderma. And I think one thing which didn't uh, I didn't even think of while reading the paper, but certainly was very apparent during the video, is the size difference of some of the smaller these smaller monitor lizards. Compared to the Heloderma. I mean, I'm talking head size here. Um the head of the head of the varan is very small, it's very pointed. And the Helodermas, I mean they have big block heads. That's that's yeah. the only way I can put it. That's bulky.
0: <laughs> They're just big chunky animals, aren't they? Yeah. They're just these heavy set beasts. Whereas, yeah, the um particularly with the uh the one in the video, which is a um green tree monitor it's very slight you know yeah but yeah it's interesting to see their difference in approach and they did say that this kind of um was true across the monitors that the beaded lizard itself actually used its claw it got its claw in one of the little holes and hooked the door open whereas most of the monitors were either just using their snouts or a combination of snout and claw um it's cool because you see the beaded lizard. It's obviously immediately quite curious. The tongue's coming out, that yep. long black tongue slapping around. It's like, there's something going on over here. And it takes it a little while. But, I mean, they are, generally speaking, just like, we did that, we did that episode before, didn't we? And we, it was ridiculous how little these animals actually consume in the course of a year. It was like 50 mm. grams of butter or something, wasn't it? It was, the equivalent it was something the
1: outrageously small. Yeah, I can't remember the number, but I remember discussing it in terms of butter.
0: Yeah, so this mouse is like a massive meal for this uh, beaded lizard, and uh, it's quite funny to see it sort of go over. But yeah, they, um, all of the animals pretty much um, were interested in the thing. There were some individuals which just did not take to this experiment very well. One of the beaded lizards, it only managed to actually get the food twice out of like a whole bunch of attempts. It just yeah, didn't really yeah. seem that keen.
1: But again, see, this is this is the issue with the sort of lab-based stuff, is you're not entirely positive what motivates an animal to take part in the experiment. Or yeah. well, I suppose the wild, you know, it's not just uh, lab-based, but the wild ones too. It is it is very difficult to to do that. And I think that's why you see fewer studies on things like snakes, where food motivation is less of a viable way of motivating an animal because a snake is going to only eat once every you know so many days or whatever so many once a month if you're dealing with bigger meals so it does make things tricky and i think that's sort of slightly you've said the energetic um differences between varanid and and heloderma i think that's very much playing into the differences in i guess act activeness or, or just sort of willingness to uh to go after perhaps
0: yeah just like keenness to be involved yeah, with it at yeah, all keenness, yeah <laughs> yeah it does seem as though the the beaded lizard that was keen it was quite slow generally speaking
1: yes i think overall it's slower than the varanids in terms of getting to the meal it yeah. had a few sort of good runs where it uh where it got in there quicker but you don't see the same you know subsequent trials getting faster and faster and faster whereas the monitors they, all their slower attempts are very much in the early trials and the later ones they get much quicker and it really zeroes into being able to go there and get the meal immediately. Whereas the Heloderma is, it either gets it or it doesn't, but the, the trend towards getting faster is very, very slight by comparison. Like yeah. it starts getting to the point that it will get it every time within that half hour cutoff, but the times aren't really impressive nor apparently downward trending that much
0: (laughs) yeah no it's just like (laughs) equally ponderous no matter how many times it's right (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah it's quite funny but obviously like this paper i mean we're talking about maximum two individuals from each species so it's kind of like just a you know a very it's a primer yeah it's a snapshot really it's just an idea isn't it it's like a yeah hey, let's see if these lizards will do this thing. And yes, they will. So I think the next thing to do would be to do this on more individuals of and of probably more species as well and see how it differs. But they did start to pick out a little bit of interesting stuff about the um, methodologies used by the different monitor lizards. They talked yeah. a little bit about like the different morphology of the nostrils and some are more adapted to digging through leaf litter than others. So... um they're more likely to dig around if they are just a species that's adapted to digging around. And if they are one of those species, then it tends to be that they've got like narrower nostrils that aren't quite on the front of the nose so that they can like dig around more effectively without getting loads of bits inside their nostrils. Yeah. Which sounds like something that wouldn't be very nice. But yeah, the long and short of this is that <laughs> the iguana wanted absolutely nothing to do with it. And yep. the beaded lizards are kind of slower learners than the uh, intellectual varinids. But, you know, you can't really say that. That's a bit of an oversimplification, a bit of a generalization, but it's just a fun paper. It's
1: definitely a bit of a generalization, but I think it's this lovely scenario where you're... I don't know, it it does spark interest in seeing how far this goes, because now you're thinking, okay, what's another test that would be more evenly suited to comparing these lizards? Like, What is something where the helodermas are either more motivated to take part in, or that the differences in morphology don't impair them in the same way so then you're actually looking more at their problem solving abilities rather than uh sort of variation coming from foraging style or um just a build of these lizards but yeah it's a wonderful it's a wonderful primer and i mean we've we've had we've we've talked about lizard problem solving with other species and things but um I don't think we've never discussed it with heloderma. So that's a really cool little starting point. Um, and the multi-species comparisons are cool too.
0: Yeah. I think it's nice to have that element of competition. I don't know if it motivates the lizards, but, um, (laughs) motivates me to read it. So, uh, that's, yeah, I mean, you know, we've got a little bit about Helodermatid intelligence there. I think we could potentially move on and talk a little bit about, although it is a different species of, uh, heloderma, isn't it? Um,
1: um, is it? I don't think it is. Is it not? No, I think that's the whole. That's the whole beauty of the transition.
0: Is 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 Charles Bogartay the yeah. Guatemalan? Oh, it yeah. is fantastic. So you got oh, these, wow.
1: these lizards living their lives in in captivity, and you know they don't appear to be that brilliant at problem solving. Although you know, days the jury's still out. Let's you know, don't yeah. don't don't give up on them yet. But in the wild, they survive, they're they're doing their thing, so it doesn't appear to be any sort of massive impediment, or that they're intelligent in different ways, or they don't need to be intelligent. But not so much research has been done on them compared to other species, and, well, there's not very many of them. That's the other thing. There's a tiny number of these guys out in the wild...
0: What are we talking about is population for the Guatemalan beaded lizard? Oh, yeah. Before we go on to that, actually, I think we should just mention, for anyone who's not sure about what a Guatemalan beaded lizard is, they're these mm. big, big black lizards. They're not, I mean, they're not crazy big. They're probably like a couple of feet long. But they, they give
1: off the, <laughs> like, sense Or I was going to say aroma of big, but that's not the right word. What's the... There's a, There's a word that I can't think of that sort of, impression impression yes That's, they give off the impression of being They're quite bulky large. and they look quite strong they've got quite blocky heads that, that gives them that sort of imposing strength look about them
0: oh uh, yeah yeah i mean uh, they are an imposing beast and the other yeah. thing about them is they're called beaded lizards so they're covered in these little beads these little nobbles they're osteoderms like bony skins so they're incredibly well armored
1: and they've got tiny, tiny, lovely, beady eyes too.
0: They do have very nice. Yeah, they've got. There's quite a sweetness to their eyes, actually. When you see them up close, They're, they look sort of a little bit. They look scary from far away, but up close, they look sort of cautious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah. So this is the lizard we're talking about. And Ben, as you said, like, there's not many of them about. They come from a very restricted range. And how many individuals are there in the world? What's the estimate?
1: Um, I think around 500.
0: 500. Okay,
1: not a yeah, lot. Yeah, because because the study we're about to talk about. Uh, their sample size, where they're dealing with 10 individuals, is, is something like 2% of the population.
0: It's remarkable.
1: Yeah. And 15... Yeah. And what their little population they're working on, they're working with a, a sample size that represents 15% of the population, which is just outrageous. You know, they are very, very limited, very, very small numbers.
0: Mm. So, I'll introduce this paper quickly. It's by Ariano Sanchez, Mortensen, Reinhardt, and Rossell, 2020. Escaping Drought Seasonality Effects on Home Range, Movement Patterns, and Habitat Selection of the Guatemalan Beaded Lizard. And that is Heloderma Charles Bogotai. And this was published in Global Ecology and Conservation. So, yeah, the fieldwork was conducted at the aptly named. Heloderma Natural Reserve, which is in the Motagua Valley in Guatemala. And there's actually a pretty fascinating story behind the origin of this reserve. So the Guatemalan beaded lizard was actually only discovered in 1984 and was initially thought. Well, described. Sorry. Yeah. Described. People knew about it. People knew about it locally, obviously, like it wasn't existing in in secret, but it was described formally in 1984 and feared extinct because of the illegal pet trade in Central America. And so they kind of had this like dual threat. One part was the illegal pet trade because beaded lizards are quite popular pets and a Guatemalan beaded lizard is like a slightly different thing. So it kind of appeals to that collector vibe, which gets species into trouble. And they used to be heavily persecuted, not only by people poaching them for the pet trade, but also people just hate them because they're venomous. They're a venomous, venomous lizard, yep. which, you know, I mean, if you know one thing about a lizard, which everyone does about beaded lizards, if, you, if people know one thing, it's the fact that they're venomous. So that does not bode well. People don't like to hear that things are venomous. And many people just assume they were really dangerous. And there was also some really wild sort of myths some like legends surrounding these animals um in people who lived nearby to them so one of them was that the reptile would attack the means it would get you is it would breathe on you and according to folklore if one breathes on you it gets you really dizzy and confused you're just like whoa whoa." liz has been breathing on me and then (laughs) once you've once you're in this kind of confused dazed state it will then come up to you with its tail and sting you and the venom is so potent so they say that it can kill you simply by touching your shadow it doesn't even have to touch you yourself so you know these are a lizard which is kind of steeped in folklore um you know these stories exist for a reason if you do pick one up it will probably suck for you so there's a reason yeah exactly that there, is, there, there is there is a
1: justification for it even if it's uh sort of blown out of proportion
0: <laughs> yeah 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 totally blown out of proportion and also just like it's not the tail you got to watch out for it's definitely the mouth um so yeah, anyway, you know, we've painted this picture of a lizard which is being per- persecuted for multiple reasons. In 2002, uh, lizards had scarcely been sighted for decades, and it was thought they might even be dying out. However, at this time, there was a Guatemalan organisation called Zootropic, which had taken a big interest in conserving Guatemala's lizards. And they actually organised a student called Daniel Ariano, who went on to become the lead author of this paper to go in and check out their range and basically just see if he could find any of these Guatemalan beaded lizards and just see where they're at, what's going on with them. Um, He had a very, very small budget and he was actually taking like crazy long bus rides. It was taking 14 hours round trip to get to his fieldwork site. So Daniel was extremely motivated. And one of the things he was doing in the course of his investigations was talking to local people, trying to get a handle on, you know, where people had seen the lizards where they might be and in the course of these investigations he ended up seeing a newspaper article and this newspaper article was about a local poacher of lizards so someone who was capturing them to sell into the illegal pet trade and his name was gilberto salazar and uh sure enough when he heard about this poacher the newspaper article came with a picture attached and the picture was this guy salazar and in the picture he's holding a beaded lizard so he's like right Okay, well, this guy obviously knows where beaded lizards are. Got to catch up Mm -hmm. with him. He managed to track him down. Obviously, you know, a conservation-minded scientist first meeting with a poacher. Kind of an awkward situation. And apparently it was marred with heavy suspicion, right? So Salazar was not best pleased in the first instance. And the story I read has Salazar at one point holding a gun to Daniel's head in like a threat, obviously there's no other way to do that other than a threatening way.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I think that's safe to say. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Wait, if someone came up to me with a gun while I was doing my field work, I'd just be like, see ya! <laughs> I don't care how endangered they are, I'm out of here. <clears throat> yeah, no, that's maybe that's not small. true. I don't know. Either way, extreme motivation. And uh, eventually Salazar came around, they became teammates, and since then Salazar's actually been like a massive proponent for the conservation of this lizard, which is fantastic. Um... Yeah, and subsequently uh, the International Reptile Conservation Foundation and Zoo Atlanta—they've joined ZooTropic as partners in this initiative—and um, yeah, the beaded lizard has become something of a flagship species for the yeah. local area. Yeah, which is just um, superb. So yeah, the reserve is called the Heloderma Reserve, and it's yeah a pretty harsh habitat. <clears throat> so what they've done. They've bought a load of land and they've also got like a captive breeding project that runs locally that is designed to produce lizards for conservation purposes. And yeah, they decided at some point to do a radio telemetric study of these lizards and see, Okay, we've got this little portion of habitat, this reserve. How are they actually using it?
1: How are they using it? What habitats are they wanting? How are they dealing with this pretty dramatic dry season, wet season transition? I've got some wonderful pictures in in figure one of this dry season where it looks like uh, the forest has just fallen apart. You know, it it is just dry shrubs with with barely any foliage left. Everything is is orange and brown. Cut to the wet season, it looks positively, you know, it's it's verdant. It's gorgeous. It's It's lush. Verdant. and lush. Yeah.
0: Verdant, mate verdant great word
1: yeah well i hope it's the right one
0: it's totally right verdant (laughs) yeah i've seen it on magic the gathering cards it means
1: green (laughs) oh perfect
0: yeah
1: i mean what do we have do we have an actual contract do we have some numbers to put to this uh wet season you're talking about rainfall almost every week wet whereas dry season you're getting multiple weeks without any rain at all uh there is also this a uh, situation where it appears to be, with as the climate crisis drags on into ever more <laughs> nightmarish horrors, Tiesome. we're seeing a a further reduction in rainfall and the sort of more extreme droughts in this area as well.
0: Oh, that's so... Okay, so this drought-adapted animal is having to deal with bonus drought.
1: Yes, yes. And even it, with with reoccurrences of droughts in the wet season, apparently. So it is a a system that is already very back and forth quite harsh and unforgiving in the sense of the contrast and now it is getting more so in some ways but i suppose as everything dries out and there's no longer a wet season it's actually getting less variable but the point is could be a tough time for the bearded lizard coming up depending on how flexible they are and how uh, habitats and things react to this drying
0: yeah well they eat all sorts of stuff don't they but I know they quite like eggs and little mammals and birds, lizards, frogs, all that kind of stuff, which many of those critters that they like dining on will probably be negatively influenced by dryness. I don't know. Like, I'm not sure Possibly. what these specifically I, eat.
1: I think I think when you get to situations like that, where you've got a predator which has quite a wide diet, um, you're going to see some things go up some things go down and mm. it's going to be one of those ones that you're actually going to have to observe to really get a handle on it it's going to be yeah. hard to guess basically hopefully you though, also don't know the the sort of behavioral flex flexibility of their prey and the lizards themselves in response to things you know mm. especially yeah. a lot of these species have got some little hidden trick up their sleeve and uh, they can get around this stuff i mean if who knows
0: yeah yeah who knows but uh, yeah wide diet breadth may be a good sign but um yeah so what are these lizards getting up to what's the day in their life do we want to how do you want to do it because i know that we've we're very fortunate ben's done some additional analysis on this data so we've got some cool insights being drawn additional to what's in the paper we've
1: got we've got some bonus analysis yeah because i i mean spatial ecology study i couldn't i couldn't resist
0: ben's um, Salivating wildly at the idea of analysing some spatial data.
1: Well, and wicked? Okay, the data wasn't immediately available, but got in touch, bam, data same day. Yeah. So I've yep. had the data and I have had to play around, which was wicked. Um, so props, props for the guy sending me that. Um, what do we want to do? Well, telemetry-wise, I'll mention it now because it might come up later. But they're sort of coming back and finding each. L- each lizard on average every six days roughly which you know that's not as not as fine uh, temporal scale as as gps stuff or some other tracking stuff we've we've discussed in the past but oh it's enough to be working with and they track them for decently long periods like most of the year for most individuals too
0: oh that's cool so it's like across the seasons
1: yeah because we've got m- so mean duration, we're talking 160 days. So that's a good chunk. The one that was tracked the longest, 318 days. Okay, there's a few that didn't get many data points. But uh, at the end of the day, there's pretty much 10 individuals with enough data to do stuff with. Um,
0: that's good going because, I mean, you look at the habitat. It's a very harsh habitat. Radio telemetry probably doesn't get much harder than a habitat, which is gullies, hills, yeah. hollows, you know, like well, rocky. Was,
1: ex- yeah, if it's, if it's anything that's up and down anything that's that's heavily rocky is going to be a nightmare for signal yeah.
0: signal's going to be pinging all over the place
1: but um i did really want to shout out how nicely reported this paper is like we've got the the tracking regime done as an actual number so you got an idea of, of how much variability there was from that sort of every six days We've got the full number of data points each individual got. We've got the full duration of every single individual. It's wonderfully broken down. I mean, we just did a, a review of something like the past 20 years of, of reptile spatial stuff. And one of the things we were looking at was reporting standards, basically how much how transparent reporting was when it came to, to the actual data gathering procedures and how much data people got. And I could pretty much guarantee you this paper would have scored top scores on all of our little criteria 10 out of 10 and that was pretty rare so this yeah. is definitely in the top probably top 30 percent of reported papers i've seen
0: i vividly remember your exasperation when you were doing that just the amount that were not oh, good and the, yeah. just the vagaries that you had to endure
1: yeah it's tough i mean it, it it's tough it's but it, when you see it done thoroughly it's i don't know it's really nice and you get to see the data too oh best case scenario <laughs> top billing, top billing. <laughs> yeah yeah Good stuff, but uh, what where do we want to start? Do we want to start well, with uh, with um?
0: Well, okay. So what have we got? What, what what's the? Let's start off with what's the home range of a of an average beaded lizard?
1: So, the estimates they give, they had kernel density estimators and they did some MCPs too. So we'll, we'll just go through a whole bunch of numbers, but we're talking like two hundred and sixty four hectares with the kernel density and about uh, 76 for the uh, minimum convex polygons. So what are we talking? That's God, something, something give, give me a relatable example, which would turn into 250 hectares.
0: Um, well, how much is a rugby pitch? I have no idea. Why rugby? No one cares about rugby. Sorry, rugby fans. Uh, what? what? <laughs> okay. Let's say a UK football pitch is 1.0. Uh, oh. <laughs> okay. A football pitch is one and a half. Uh, one hectare comprises between 1.2. Okay, so the football pitches aren't an exact size. <laughs> okay. Well, let's say it's like just over the size of a football pitch.
1: Okay, so 250 of them.
0: <laughs> wow. So it's probably like 200. It's probably like 300. No, maybe 270 football pitches. Wow. One beaded lizard's covering 270 football pitches. Okay. That's a pretty right
1: pretty sizable area. Now, so this is a bit that I did a little bit of bonus analysis because, I mean, I'm sure people people have heard me talk on the podcast with the issues with the kernel density estimator stuff and the sort of sensitivity to some of the numbers you put in to, to pull out these results. So they used quite a generous... Uh, smoothing factor in their kernel density estimators that gave them this quite big 250. So I was like, all right, what if I I got the data? They very care, uh, kindly uh, shared with me the data, and I ran the a autocorrelated version of it. Basically, something that's taking into account more aspects of the data and how uh, basically how much data there is and how it's sort of levelled off. Because if you imagine a scenario where you're going out every day tracking an individual, the more data points you get, the more likely you are to see them using a larger area, until it hits some sort of like stability or, or stabilization where the individual is only using areas that you've already previously recorded them.
0: Yeah, that uh, that is true of all animals that are not nomadic, right?
1: Right. Nomadic, you throw the whole thing out the window and you've got to deal with it in a different way. But the assumption that they're stable and they are range resident, you've got to get an idea of how much data you need to really uh, be confident in your estimates. So one caveat going into this is I'm not super confident most of these individuals are stable, i.e. there's enough data to be confident in the final estimate. It does seem like uh, the more data points you have, it's still getting a bit bigger each time. That being said still worth sort of running this and seeing how it goes and what I got with, so I did it, I split it male and female, I modelled them all together, all individually, then sort of slapped the whole thing together at the end Um, and I got more conservative estimates of their home range so I got females being around 50 hectares and males having a range of around 4 hectares but the big but with this is that what I was some of these are going to be a lot, lot lower than they should be because they haven't stabilized. So there's a lot. Yeah. It's it, only it, a window it's into be, their
0: behavior, right? It's just like right. a short period.
1: Yeah. So the analysis is sort of treating them, making the assumption that they are range resident, but the stuff I looked at beforehand suggested that they're not range resident. Therefore, the estimates are going to be low balls, I reckon. And a meter to kilometers is thousand. Yeah, so I think there's a difference of 100 between hectares and, and uh, square kilometers. Some of the autocorrelated things have been pumped out as square kilometers, some of them have been pumped out as. Um... So all those numbers I gave, complete junk. Absolute junk. Because <laughs> it's giving me some of them as hectares, some of them as square kilometers. I bet you anything. A few moments later. So, we're back. I just live coded a fix. Uh, with this this hectare um, <laughs> hectare uh, square kilometers mix, mix up it was so I actually have some real numbers now some some like real real stuff we have a we have a mean which is much closer to the uh, one they report which makes a lot more sense a mean of two hundred twenty one hectares yeah overall population mean we have a maximum. Of two thousand two hundred hectares for one individual, absolute monster. And we have a minimum of around six hectares. What, all... what,
0: what was the deal for that one? That's going 200, two hundred, two thousand two hundred hectares.
1: I don't know, but but, harking back to my my mentions, is some of this stuff can be quite off because of the assumption of range stability being uh, been breached. Yeah. So maybe it's only maybe it's one with only a few. Locations. Okay, Um, yes, it
0: could be overestimating.
1: And when I'm when I'm saying it's that's the maximum, that's the maximum. That individual, it's it's uh, an animal called Willis, and the the best estimate is something around 970 hectares. That 221 uh, 2211 Sorry, that's the upper confidence bound for that individual. Sounds that like the said, max it could feasibly be. Yeah, but because of this breach, it could be it could be bigger. Um, now, what I was going to say when they sort of drew out my my silly issue with the square kilometers hectare scenario is, I have a situation. They they said in the paper that they didn't compare male females because of the small sample size, um, which is totally fact. But I still want to know that answer, Um, which is
0: different. The the question being: Do males and females have different home ranges?
1: Yeah. So, to me, it seems okay. You can't. You probably can't do a nice little neat t-test, but I did a little Bayesian test of difference. Essentially, Um, males do seem to have quite a bit bigger range. Uh, The mean male range, or estimated mean, four hundred eight hectares pretty huge. Females, uh, 94 hectares. But even, you know, even that smaller female range, that's still bigger than those other heloderma estimates. It's pretty, pretty sizable. And my little, my little, uh, I can't remember what you call it. I can't remember what the term is. Either way, the output, the Bayesian probability output jobbo, 91.5% probability that you're going to be if you would i think the way you can conceptualize this is if you were to pick an individual at random from this population and they were male there'd be a 91.5 percent chance that they would have a larger range than a randomly selected female
0: gotcha gotcha so really you can say males have got a Yeah, you can say with some certainty.
1: Yeah, you know, you're floating around that 95% sure sort of thing that males are going to have a bigger range.
0: And I mean, that's pretty common for a lot of animals. It does. A lot of reptiles, Um, the males are hunting for the... Well, they're hunting, the wrong word. They are going around looking for mates with a lot more vigour than the females are.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I... I don't know. I think I think you've got to do a little bit more digging into exactly the reason behind uh, it all.
0: Of course, yeah, yeah.
1: But the upshot is uh, a little bit of sort of different stats. Sort of is supporting that. Uh, a comp- well, not a completely different, but a different uh, potentially more robust home range estimation method is showing broadly similar results as to what they ro- report in the paper, which is wicked. Yeah, what did I say? My mean was 221, and they had a mean of 264.
0: So, yeah, broadly similar, especially when... Yeah. Cool. Oh,
1: well, that's good. That's great. Um, So, yeah,
0: male Guatemalan beaded lizards a little bit more busy than the females, and, uh, yeah, surprisingly large ranges. I mean, especially when you give... You know, when you give consideration to the cover, they're traversing, you know, these like deep gullies, rocks. But I suppose perhaps food is quite scarce in that environment, particularly when it's dry. And am I right in saying their home ranges, was there a seasonal difference in home range? Were they doing more traveling around in the dry season or the wet season?
1: Uh, more, More distance traveled in the wet season than the dry.
0: Right. So they're traveling further in the wet. That's very odd. I guess they're just keeping a low profile in the dry and trying not to expend too much energy.
1: Yeah I think that's essentially what the uh what the paper really highlighted yeah wet season more more movement probably a need for less uh less energy conservation and they're seeing that also in the distances traveled so we had a, a step length that was much lower in the dry season than it was for the wet and also in the wet they tended to uh have a higher turn angle so this basically means that they were going more taking more circuitous routes there was more flexibility in the in the movement pathways which i mean if you're going from point a to point b and you take a straight line you're traveling less and going from point a to point b but wiggling around all between rocks and stuff you know there's that caveat of they're only tracked every six or so days so there might actually be this might be an underestimate both the step length and the um turning angle things might change on a finer scale that these might be these differences might be exaggerated even more you know it's certainly something like turn angle can can change differently on on different scales
0: yeah i mean the reality is you're not going to capture every time an animal turns direction in in six days by tracking it once every six days i mean i've probably changed direction yeah at least four times today
1: yeah i mean i'm changing direction i'm sitting here doing a podcast so
0: yeah you're making me uneasy will you stay one direction
1: Right, but if you were to look at where I was in two weeks' time, it would look like I hadn't changed direction at all.
0: True that, because we'd be back here.
1: Yeah, so some cool initial findings. Okay, small sample. Okay, relatively rough uh, tracking regime, but still some pretty interesting stuff to get started, and with uh, home range estimates that seem to be pretty decent even when you throw... uh, more robust methods their way even though the caveat is they might not have enough data to really say that they're range resident
0: well there you have it some of the habits of the guatemalan beaded lizard a species which without the intervention of some really you know great people may not still be alive and kicking or certainly wouldn't be in the excellent shape that they appear to be in so yeah uh you know definitely um a bit of a conservation success story which is seldom seen and extremely welcome.
1: Yeah, they did have a nice just just to tie that back into the the trade stuff and the the risks these species are facing. They did highlight that 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 wet season with the increased movement that might be the time you need to really watch out in terms of protecting that species. A more active species might be more easy to find. If they're just chilling during the dry, harder to find. So mm you know there's all all these parts all sort of play into each other at the end of the day how the animals are behaving and how easy they are to find and then the climate changing potentially the balance between active and less active times a year too
0: Mm, excellent well
1: i love it yep
0: i think they're fantastic lizards yeah let's move on to our species of the bi-week shall we
1: all righty
0: Okay, so this paper is uh, Bruil, Sikorsky, Viam, Kraus, Morton, Cory, Beck, Jellic, Grandjean, 2020, painted black. And now they've got the species name in the title of the paper. Extremely controversial new trend that's coming why, in.
1: Is, why was it controversial to begin with?
0: Because it's kind of a spoiler alert for our podcast. Because we <laughs> like to sort of, you know, <laughs> gently lower the listener into the explanation and perhaps discovery of the species. You know, we don't want to just slap it straight away. We want to have a little bit of mystery. So I'm not going to say it. Oh, what I'm going to say is you're just going to beep it out. Be painted black. A new melanistic endemic species from Saba and Montserrat Islands in the Lesser Antilles, published in the open access Zoo Keys. So, yeah, we're traveling to the beautiful Lesser Antilles, the Caribbean, or as our American listeners would say, Caribbean, um, which is the wrong pronunciation of that word. And people in the Caribbean will tell you that. It's actually offensive. So, (laughs) (laughs) what? Yeah, apparently it derives from an indigenous tribe called the Caribs. So, it's supposed to have an emphasis on the first syllable, Caribbean. Oh, Rather I did than not Car- know that. Caribbean. Yeah. Anyway, so um, beautiful islands off the northern coast of South America, you know, connecting in that arc to like Florida eventually. Um, and we're talking about Sabah and Montserrat. And these islands, two of the islands in the Lesser Antilles, are home to mysterious black iguanas. Montserrat already has the mountain chicken frog and the Montserrat galliwasp that lizard that looks like a skink but isn't a skink it's like an anguiform it's like a <gasps> those
1: those those are names that you it it's difficult to imagine what the animal looks like yeah from the or name alone or even if alone. it's
0: what sort of what group of organisms you'd find it in like galliwasp yeah what it's fun is it a what a wasp
1: <laughs> <laughs> no we'll...
0: it's actually Like a slow wormy with legs type of guy. Anyway, so Montserrat... Mountain
1: chicken? You're just going to leave mountain chicken lying there? That's a frog. (laughs) Yeah, there we go.
0: (laughs) It's a delicious edible frog that lives on the mountain. And they're big and red and comical. And uh, yeah, hence the name, the mountain chicken frog. So Montserrat's already got these kind of like two flagship conservation species for lizards, so they were just like, you know, we don't care about our black iguanas, we're not even going to call them anything, they're just black iguanas. Saba, on the other hand, not so blessed with endemic reptiles for flagship species status, they actually called their black iguanas the Saban black iguana, and they already consider it a flagship species for conservation, despite the fact that up until now it didn't have its own species designation. So, when we're talking about iguanas in the Caribbean, you've got to think about the Caribbean as this, like, constantly evolving place, right? There's, like, a ton of people yeah, there. Yeah, dynamic. A ton of shipping. Not only that, there's volcanoes, yeah? Yep. We've got earthquakes. Hurricanes. Hurricanes. Hurricanes? Devastating. Earth processes going on non-stop yeah. and if you're an iguana caught up in any of those natural cataclysms all you can do is sit tight and hope you don't get swept out to sea and if you do get swept out to sea hope you land on another island which you can then colonize with your buds
1: yeah i mean we're, we're, if, if when the hurricane rolls in you got to grab on right those those little anolis that were hanging on against oh yeah leaf blowers yeah. oh boy
0: yeah that was that was cool paper so yeah You've got to realise that iguanas get about, and people have liked iguanas for a long time. They're charming, they're majestic, they're large, and they're delicious. So people have been transporting them around. So I'm sorry. You heard me correctly. They're delicious.
1: Do people eat iguanas?
0: Mate, people eat anything. Yeah, yeah iguanas true. have got so yeah. much meat on them. I mean, it's the same size as... People eat squirrels, and an iguana is basically like 10 squirrels in a scaly skin. <sighs> meat-wise. So, yeah, people are eating them. So they've been introduced for food. Basically, the green iguana is like this real dominant force. It's getting around. It's getting everywhere. It's interbreeding with stuff. So that's one of the main threats to like the new newer species of iguanas. But what I'm trying to say is that in the area of iguana conservation, there's some confusion, right? Without genetics, it's often hard to tell. Sometimes iguanas are quite variable in their appearance as well.
1: Yep. Yep.
0: And the conservation minded herpetologists who wrote this paper were keen to describe this species, which represents the black iguanas on Montserrat and Sabá. And it also, there are also some individuals down in Venezuela also, which are being described as the same species, which is a bit confusing because Venezuela is oh. like hundreds of kilometers away. Interesting. Um, and actually Sabá and Montserrat aren't next door neighbors. There's another island I can't remember the name of in between. So like the distribution of this species is a little bit confusing, but they used morphological analysis combined with some genetics
1: saint christopher and nevis are both in between
0: thank you good stuff and uh yeah they wanted to describe this new species so they had a good look at the genetics of a bunch of different iguanas um paying particular attention to these black iguanas they're they're rare of course um so they didn't want to take a fresh they didn't want to kill an individual for their holotype so they actually used a holotype from an old museum specimen from the 70s so that's kind of a a futuristic oh. element to this paper they were fortunate enough to have a holotype and there was another sample as well the head of which they used as the uh paratype so no fresh animals had to die for this description which is kind of cool um, yeah yeah
1: yeah that's
0: that's i mean totally that's something nice to hear yeah i mean it's something which i perceive as a necessary evil but in this case they saw it wasn't necessary so they didn't have to do it which is great um
1: well that's yeah there's 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 one thing it being a necessary evil there's another thing <laughs> it's not your first call. If there's an option to get around it, you take that option. Oh yeah, it, it, yes. Yeah. Only a necessary evil when it becomes necessary, and they otherwise to make it not a necessary evil.
0: Otherwise, it just becomes an evil. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> an unnecessary evil. That's cruel. So yeah, um, and yeah, they've described this species based on the DNA stuff I was talking about, and the fact that they're morphologically different, and they've given it a fantastic name: Iguana melanoderma which is commonly known as the Melanistic Lesser Antilles Iguana, or on Sabah, they're calling it the Saban Black Iguana. And yeah, it's got a lot of black on its body, particularly the adults. When they're juveniles, they're a little bit more greeny. They've got this like, they call it a carpet pattern, which is sort of like different type, different colors of green sort of mashed together in a nice little pattern. Uh, But yeah, as they get older, they become very black, like... The legs and the head become very black in some individuals their whole body becomes black with just a little bit of white on the nose and on the face and yeah they're living in quite a surprising environment actually in sabah they're living on cliffs and in shrubland and forest up to 500 meters above sea level and they're living on the windward side of the island right so it's the side that the wind blows in so it's quite foggy it's quite cool it's very moist And that seems to be what the iguanas like, that sort of humidity and freshness. And there's some nice pictures in the paper of them just kind of jamming around on the cliffs. There's some nice... They do some quite cool postures to try and absorb the heat (laughs) of the sun. they arch their backs. Real poses. Very fetching. Um, Possibly the reason for their black coloration is this, you know, faster warming associated with melanism. Maybe that's the case.
1: It would be cool if they were sort of using a a little... I guess it, it... Almost almost it's their own little niche. So your regular iguana or regular sort of iguanas in these areas making use of your more classically reptile environments that you would expect, a nice warm sheltered side. Perhaps, you know, southern slopes, that sort of thing. Then these guys are like, oh well, you yeah, know have adapted darken their darken their skin so they can absorb absorb that warmth a little bit better and they've they've got the whole side of the island to themselves.
0: It makes sense. It does. So that's in Saba. They're on that windward side. In Montserrat, they're generally seen, they're quite often seen in residential areas, which is kind of more to what you were saying about them just being in like sunny, warm, chilling places. Um, But they're also sometimes seen higher up in the forest. Now, Montserrat in the 1990s had like a series of really devastating earthquakes. Huge, Yeah sorry not earthquakes volcanic eruptions. volcanic eruptions yeah um so prior to this the capital city of plymouth was somewhere that they were often seen on the seawall just sort of chilling around but plymouth was completely buried in 1997 by one of the earth one of the eruptions from this um volcano Montserrat. so they're obviously not not seen there anymore i think
1: it's a monster volcano isn't
0: it is that what it's called I'm yeah
1: relatively sure that the island and volcano would uh, share share the same name
0: I'm not, I've because they've got, there's a few different volcanic regions. Uh, I thought it was called something French.
1: Uh, could be. Oh, yeah. No, you're right. Absolutely. It's, 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 it's not, uh, it does have a separate name. The uh, Suferi Hills volcano, perhaps? Suferi yeah. Hills?
0: <laughs> that must be why I decided not to mention it. Yeah, um... <laughs> that's a difficult
1: word and I'm definitely not saying it correctly
0: um anyway so yeah they now they seem to be generally found around streams inland yeah that volcano was devastating to the human population like two-thirds of the people had to flee um it was, yeah, really terrible, and so obviously that's probably changed the dynamics of the habitat for the lizards quite a lot as well, but they do seem to be doing okay. There's not massive amounts, um, but yeah, they lay eggs, 15 to 30 eggs, in sand or loose soil. It's one of the few things that we know about them ecologically from this paper, and of course, iguana melanoderma, melanoderma, just means black-skinned, which is an extremely fitting name for this lizard.
1: What's the holotype? Sorry, I was just I was I was doing my job of working out how big these guys are. How long
0: are they, Ben?
1: We got a we got an SVL a holotype has an SVL of twenty six point three centimetres and a tail length of sixty-six point four. So that is giving a grand total of ninety two point seven centimetres.
0: Yeah, sort of like a miniature iguana.
1: Yeah, I sp- yeah, I suppose like green iguanas can get really big.
0: Yeah, they can get scary large.
1: Yeah, so to tangle
0: with them. Um, yeah, so they recommend it should be classed as critically endangered because of cats and dogs and goats and cars, and invasive iguanas coming in and getting freaky with them and messing up the gene pool.
1: Yep. So the classic island uh, species. What was that? How many did you? I was going to say trifecta of threats, but that is well. Invasive not. species
0: is one, so that's cats, dogs, and goats. Cars—I mean, cars are kind of their own thing. Not always cars are an issue, but on these islands, there's quite a lot of roads, so cars. And hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, the invasive iguanas are kind of tied in with the other invasive species, really. So it's almost well, a, 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 a I don't restricted know. I range.
1: Would, I would treat them. I would treat them as a separate one because you're you're dealing with uh, interbreeding as a issue as opposed to predation
0: competition yeah yeah because i mean really.
1: the solution there is is probably well the monitoring and solution there are, are going to be probably different
0: yeah and they do go into a little bit of, of, of sort of um, explanation about the weird distribution of this species having some down on the mainland and then two on these um islands hundreds yeah. of kilometers away and not even close to each other and they suggest that it might have been natural dispersal from originating in venezuela where yep other melanistic iguanas are found. Uh, it could have been human dispersal by pre-Columbian native indigenous people from the Americas, moving them around. It could also have been dispersal by modern man. More recently, people just slinging the iguanas off their boats when they discover them <laughs> hitchhiking. Uh, it could also have been convergent evolution, but that seems unlikely given the genetic stuff that they've found. Um, right. Or the last, the last thing they propose is that it, they'd once had a much wider range, but they've since been extirpated locally. Um, although i don't know how much fossil evidence there was for that so the likely answer is probably a combination of some of those it's still a bit of a mystery
1: yeah and it might be one of those unsolvable ones i mean certainly if it was the fossil uh, scenario if the fossil record doesn't exist it doesn't exist because yeah. it's not there doesn't mean that it's didn't exist in a lot of cases so that makes things a lot trickier the genetics yeah. i think is probably a good clue that it isn't convergent at very least
0: so yeah that would be really weird yeah that would I mean, it's one thing to converge on the same answer, but if you converge the same genes, it's not convergent evolution.
1: Well, I think if that was the case, it would completely undermine the very foundations of genetic (laughs) species uh, delineation. (laughs) You'd be rewriting so much stuff and it seems exceedingly unlikely.
0: That would actually be an argument for God. Oh, these two green animals are both green because of the same green genes. What? <laughs> one's from here, one's from there. It's a, god. Well, That's a it, god. No, it would be
1: more than... It would be like the weird random nonsense mutations that don't actually serve any purpose, but it's just sort of genetic drift occurred identically as well.
0: Yeah, that would just be bonkers. It doesn't it, make nah, any sense.
1: Nah, it's, it's,
0: okay, so there we go. Brand new species of cool black iguana, iguana melanoderma. Welcome to science yeah all right on so have you got any other business
1: um do i have any other business uh no no not yet no there's a few things that i'm waiting for any other business but they've got to fully come to fruition before they can be
0: and we also have a new patron nick mora big up nick thanks very much indeed
1: awesome thanks
0: um yeah i guess then all that remains to be said is thank you very much to miles masterson our patreon who suggested this episode great suggestion as always yeah. if you'd like to be a patron yourself you can patreon.com herp highlights if you want to get in touch with us if you've got a question whatever it might be you can email us highlights at gmail.com we're also on facebook twitter and the gram so check us out on all of those social medias i think all that remains to be said is thank you for listening
1: yeah thanks for listening